0: God is certainly good. Amen. <laughs> oh my goodness. Thank you Jane and thank you dear brother David. That's your song, Bud. That's your song and Jane, you got a job. You got a job. How blessed that we are. You know, I asked for that specifically this morning, the song because of the message and Jane to sign it because I wanted to communicate something that often, you know, God communicates with us. We are we're in the midst of our series ...called The Magnificent Seven... ...and talking about seven points of surrender... ...and talking about our eyes and our hearing... ...our heart, our mind, our mouth... ...our hands and our feet... ...and how God... ...how different life would be... ...if God really worked in our lives... ...and we truly surrendered... ...as we were singing the white flag song... ...I almost took the flag and lifted it up over here... ...and just waved it... ...as we understand what it means to really surrender... ...how different would our life be... ...how different would marriages be... ...how different would our careers be... Um, ...how different would parent-student relationships be be um husband wife relationships how different would it be if we truly honestly surrendered and sometimes as god speaks to us about where we are uh talking about our hearing as he talks to us sometimes he has a conversation with us sometimes we hear almost verbally what he's trying to say to us he speaks of course through his word but sometimes in our hearts it's almost like a real i know there are people here would would say amen to this it almost seems like you heard a voice when God spoke to you, so sometimes there's a conversation, but sometimes there's a demonstration. And God, through circumstances, through signs and almost through wonders, He demonstrates who He is and His power and His message to you. Just like we saw today, we heard the powerful words, and we saw the beautiful signage as Jane signed those words. Sometimes a conversation and sometimes a demonstration. And so when we left Elijah last week, we left him in the total uh, pits of despair. He was fear, uh, full of fear. Jezebel had threatened him. He ran and we find him um, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the wilderness. He's he's underneath a broom tree and he's sound asleep. That's where we find him at. It just seemed so hopeless. You might say you might say um, spiritually he was defeated. Physically, he was depleted. Emotionally, he was deflated. I mean, he was at ropes end. Um, if, if it was a, if he was treading water, he'd be going down for the third count. If it was a football game, it's the fourth quarter with thirty seconds left. You're down thirty points, and the team has the ball. Been there, been there. Some of you have, and some of you can't admit it because it's too embarrassing, too hard for you. You know, truth is, someone here might be here, might be there right now today, and it just seems. So hopeless. If you are not there, have not been there, but chances are you know someone who is there. Who is there. It seemed hopeless to Kurt Warner. Kurt Warner um, was not drafted in 1994 um, in the NFL. And so he went to work at a grocery store making five fifty an hour. No prospects for the NFL. He played arena football for a while. He even went to Europe and played Europe NFL over there. And then he made his way into the NFL, and he played for the uh, St. Louis Rams. And he led his team to the Super Bowl and was named the MVP that year. Later on, he led his team back to the Super Bowl and was again named MVP. In 2008, he was um, named NFL Man of the Year because of of his uh, activities off the field, not on the field. It seemed so hopeless, and yet he was a comeback kid. We saw recently this year, I think it was January 4th, somewhere around there, we saw as the Colts played the Chiefs. And and the game, they were down 28 points in the third quarter. And and the Colts came back and defeated the Chiefs. You know, in that little space of time, it seemed like it couldn't happen. But there was a great comeback. Because that's not the greatest comeback. The greatest comeback was 1993 uh, when the Bills were playing the Houston Oilers. And they were down 32 points at the half. And they came back. And won that game. You see. When it seems like it's hopeless. There's hope. Especially. When it involves God. Especially when God is in the picture. And I don't know what you would expect when you see this this great man of God, Elijah. And those of you, you kind of have to know a little bit of the Bible because we don't have time to tell the whole story. But you know, he really was a great, God had done great things. I mean, it was incredible. And yet we see him cowering in the wilderness, asleep on a broom tree, totally exhausted, again, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, a zero. Let me ask you a question. How do you think God would respond? I know there's some of you here today who would fully expect God to just give him a good kick in the bottom and say, get up. Some of you would expect God to, to give him this stern lecture about, don't you know what it is to be a believer? And there's been too many fingers pointed like this. And that's how you look at God. You fully expect the wrath of God. You expect the chastening of God. You expect anything but God's love and mercy. And that's what I want you to see today. I want you to see that that God is a come-home God and God is a come-back God. There is too much twisting of the character of God. He is a wonderful God of grace and a wonderful God of mercy. You know, this afternoon in the Super Bowl, there's going to be about three major groups of people. You know, there's going to be the ones on the side of the Seahawks. And there's going to be the, the, the group of people on the side of the Patriots. And then there's going to be this group of people that they don't even know who's playing. They're just there for the party. And that's, and that, hey, that's a chunk of what Super Bowl is about. I heard a ca- caster say this week that I remember when the Super Bowl used to be about football. And now it's about the halftime show. It's about the partying, the drinking, uh, the commercials, all those different things. And it's not what it used to be about. But, you know, the crazy thing is, it's just like the chunk of the Super Bowl group today could give, you know, give less, you know, care less about football. There's a whole lot of people out there who want to be on that middle ground. You know, they the Bible clearly teaches that that there is a there's a there's a God side and a not God side. But there's a chunk of people who want to be somewhere in the middle. They want to be somewhere in that neutral ground. They want God somehow just be a part of their lives. Maybe when they die, but right now they don't need God. And somehow because they're an American or because they go to church or because of something, they have no relationship, but they're counting on God to come through at the last minute. Let me tell you something. You know, David... Thank you, David, for preaching part of my message. But... Without Christ, we are the enemies of God. Without Christ, we are the enemies of God. There is no middle ground. But you need to hear today that God is a come-home God. I can't explain it to you fully. I don't fully grasp all that it means. But amazingly, our God looks at those who are so sinful, Him being so holy, and yet loves them. I know there's this, there's this doctrine or something. I'm not even sure what you call it going on out there, that God hates sinners. And I understand there's portions of scripture where you could draw that from. But I can't get away from John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his own. He gave on a Roman cross and Jesus went through the wrath of God. He gave his only begotten son to a Roman cross. That whoever chooses to believe in them. Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that just incredible? The Bible says in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 8. But God demonstrated. God showed his love to us. That while we were still sinners. He didn't start loving me today. I met Jesus. He loved me before. He loved me enough to send his son Jesus Christ to a Roman cross to die for me. God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. How incredible. He's the come-home God. Of course, Jesus reinforced this in, in Luke in chapter 6, verse 35. There he says, Jesus says, But love your enemies, do what is good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He, for He, God, for He, God, is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, therefore, just as your Father also is merciful. In other words, Jesus says, we are most like Him when we extend mercy and grace. But here's what you need to understand. Just like every game has a clock, God has a clock too. He loves you. But if you die without Jesus Christ, you will experience the full wrath of this holy God. And again, God did everything he could. Sin came into the world because of our arrogance and our rebellion, our disobedience. And God sent his son Jesus. So men and women and children could come into a relationship with him. You can't win the game once the buzzer's over. You can grab the ball and run up and down the field multiple times pretending like you're scoring, but when it's game over, it's game over. Right now, God extends His grace and mercy to each one of us. But when you take the last breath, when your last heartbeat comes, and you die without Christ, you will find yourself eternally separated from a God who loved you. And that would be a terrible tragedy. It would be a terrible tragedy. He's the come home God. And today as you're sitting here breathing. And as you're listening on the radio. I am telling you there is a God who loves you so much. The greatest demonstration was Calvary's cross. It shouts to us today. If you're sitting here and say, I don't believe God could ever love a person like me. It shouts to you today. That God loves you. And wants to come in a relationship with you. But there is but one way, and that's the cross, and that's grace, and that's forgiveness. But it's got to happen now, because after the last breath, after the last heartbeat, it will be too late. Then, he's to come back, God. Because those of us who have experienced God's grace, and those of us who have stumbled and fallen, can I have an amen? Amen. Some of us who know what it's like to fail and seems like fail too often. He's the comeback God. And that really is what our story is about today. It's about Elijah who needed a comeback. Again, we find him in the desert, in the wilderness, under a broom tree, scared to death, running from Jezebel and running away from God. And what is God's beautiful response going to be? It's going to be what we heard today already. Hey, Elijah, you're redeemed. Elijah, you're my masterpiece. Elijah, it's not over till I say it's over. And if you're here today and you have been, been in, the, in the thralls of de- defeat and disillusionment and discouragement. And frankly, if you could, you just say these words. I'm just not. I'm just angry at God. You're a child, but you're mad because of circumstances, because it didn't play out like you thought it should. He'd tell you, I don't understand that, he'd say, but you're redeemed. You are my masterpiece, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 10. We are his master masterpiece, created unto good works, which he foreordained for us. It's not over because I'm the comeback. God. Our scripture this morning is back in 1 Kings. In chapter 19. Picking up on verse 5b. I've said it about three times. We'll say it one more time. Elijah is... He's left his servant behind. He's in the wilderness. He's asleep under a broom tree. And then through demonstration and through conversation. Say that with me. Through demonstration and through conversation. God speaks to Elijah. Here's how it starts. Suddenly an angel touched him. The angel told him, get up and eat. Then he looked, and there at his head was a loaf of bread baked over hot stones and a jug of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Did you see it? Did you hear the chastisement? Did you hear the lecture? Did you hear the long sermon? No, it's just remarkable how the comeback God responds to the one who needs to come back. He sees his needs and he does two things. He gives him refreshment and he gives him a reminder. He gives him refreshment and he gives him a reminder. You see, literally, Elijah is exhausted The last three years really have been tremendously exciting but difficult. And he is totally exhausted. And frankly, there's not too many Burger Kings in the middle of the wilderness. So he's hungry. And God feeds him. He wakes up and by his head, cooked on hot stones, is a loaf of bread and a cruise or a vessel of water. Now, this is a flashback time. Flashback. We flashback not three weeks, not six months. We flashback about three years. And after Elijah made that prophetic statement that there would be no rain in the land, he went into the wilderness. And there God took care of him. And even though in the midst of a drought, there was a stream that kept running. And amazingly, God... Would send birds. And every morning. The birds would come and bring bread. And the birds would bring meat. And he drank from the stream. In the evening. Here come the birds with bread and meat. And he drank from the stream. Over and over and over again. The birds came. And they fed Elijah. Bread and meat. And he drank from the stream. And God was saying over and over again, I am faithful, I can be trusted, I am faithful, I can be trusted in difficult times, I am faithful, I can be trusted. And God is sending a demonstration to Elijah, saying, Elijah, do you remember the time? Do you remember the time when you were on the run and you were in the desert and there shouldn't have been a stream flowing? But there was... There shouldn't have been any bread, but there was. There shouldn't have been any meat, but there was. Elijah, I'm faithful. I can be trusted. Just a little while later, the layer on the stream dries up because God wanted to move Elijah along. He sends him to Zarephath and he tells him to confront a widow lady who's going to supply his needs. And widow ladies are poor and they had nothing, no income. And so he sees the lady and, and he says, hey, why don't you cook some bread for me? And she goes, well, the truth is I've got just a little bit of oil, a little bit of flour. And I'm going to eat this loaf here, me and my son, and we're going to die. And Elijah basically says, well, God sent me here. And he says, if you'll trust him... Just go ahead first and take the oil and take the flour and make make a loaf of bread that, that I can eat. That God's going to do something miraculous. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says over and over again the flour didn't get used up and the oil didn't go away. And God was saying, I'm faithful, I can be trusted. I'm faithful, I can be trusted. It is no accident that Elijah wakes up and God demonstrates himself to him with food. And says to him again, do you remember, let me remind you that I can be trusted. I know you're afraid. I know you're in a dark place. But I'm the comeback God. And I can be trusted. And I will be faithful. So Elijah goes back to sleep. Shall we say God allows him to go back to sleep? And he rests some more. And the Bible says that the angel then came to him a second time and touched him. He said, get up and eat or the journey will be too much for you. Another reminder, a little more refreshment. So he got up and ate and drank. And this is just so interesting. Then on the strength from that food... And may I say probably the encouragement from that food. He walked 40 days and 40 nights. And we won't go into the prospects of the 40 having great significance. You can do that on your own. I don't know if you're into scripture numerics or not. But but 40 has a very prominent place to play in scripture. He walks 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now this is just, this is big in a couple of ways. First off, check this out. It was a journey of about 250 miles. So Elijah got up after eating this food and walked to Nashville and then went 70 more miles. That's how far the journey was to Horeb, the mountain of God. He walks to Nashville and then 70 miles more miles it probably should have taken him about two weeks but it took him 40 days implying that that he was not in a hurry to get there see horeb the mountain of god was mount sinai the names are used interchangeably in scriptures and you know mount sinai remember that's where moses went he countered god that's that's where moses went and received the ten commandments twice that's, that's where Moses went and communed with God. That's when Moses went and, and he wanted to see the glory of God. So glory, uh, God hit him in the cleft of a rock. That's Mount Horeb. That's the mountain of God. And apparently, Elijah chose the place. We don't see a command from God, go to the mountain of God. And so he goes, seeking God. Let me just pause here. If you're here today, in your darkness, you're Elijah. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually, you're almost at zero. Your circumstances are such that you don't know if you're going to pull through it. Can I just encourage you to do something? And you've kind of done it today. Go back. If you're going to come pat back, you need to go back. If you're going to come back, you need to go back. Go back to the last place where you knew God was. And Elijah may or may not have been here before, but he knew that it had great spiritual significance and he was in great need spiritually, emotionally, and physically. He, if he's going to have a comeback, it was going to have to involve God. So he goes back, goes to a place where he figures God will be. I don't understand. I think I do sometimes, but I don't understand. But so often as a Christ follower, when we are going through difficult times, we have this real tendency to to run from God and not run to God. I said it last week very clearly. Listen, more than you know, you need church. Because church should be a safe place. Church should be a sanctuary. Sanctuary. Church should be a place where you have the opportunity to worship and encounter God. And hopefully associate with people who love you and will strengthen you. So if you're in that dark place, don't run from church. And and put it more clear, don't run from God. Run to Him and run to the house of God. Even though it's difficult sometimes to do that. And the other thought is this. You know in America... When people drive by our church, they go, Oh, that's a church. And they kind of associate church and God, church and God, church and God. They see the steeple, church and God. They associate that. And so often, when people are looking for God, guess where they come? They come to church. Can I just encourage you in something? Let's be the kind of church. That when people who come who somehow connect church and God and they feel like they're being pulled to God, they don't understand what's going on, can we be the church where a lost person can walk in and be loved? Can we be the kind of church when people come in, they don't find judgment, they don't find condemnation, they don't find us saying, if you'll quit this and start that or dress a certain way, we'll let you in. Uh, Come back when you're just a little bit better. Again, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know about your salvation experience but God God didn't give me a list of rules to follow and say, when you start those rules, I'll let you in. Sometimes this is the first step to a person being pulled by God to discover Jesus. Let's make sure this building is not about us. It's about him and it's about them. Him and them. So he goes to, to Mount Horeb, this, this mountain of God, and he enters a cave and spent the night. And here's just a little nugget for you. I read uh, several commentaries and they all said the same thing. In the Hebrew, it definitely says, and he entered the cave, not a cave, the cave. And there's at least a chunk of theologians who believe that not only has Elijah went to the mountain of God, not only has he come to the place where Moses encountered God, where Moses received the King commandments, but perhaps the very cave Where God placed him as his glory passed by in the cleft of the rock. The important thing for you to know is is that he's in a very, very special place. So then the Bible says, God speaks in verse 9b. Then the word of the Lord came to him, came to Elijah. And God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah. So he gets there and God begins speaking and says, what are you doing here? And again, there's a little bit of discussion about what did God mean by here? You know, did did God mean, why are you here and not in Israel and Samaria? Because that's where I've called you to be a prophet. Why are you not where I put you? Why are you here? And then some people say, why are you here at Mount Horeb? Why are you here at Sinai? Why have you chosen this place to come and let us have this conversation? And just maybe God's saying, what are you doing here? (laughs) Like in the pits of despair, like in emotionally and physically and spiritually depleted. Why are you here? And Moses gives him an answer. And let me give you the answer and then I'll give you the answer. Elijah's come to complain. And he's come to quit. And even after being fed, being reminded, God sustained him for 40 days and 40 nights, and they've been to walk 250 miles. He gets to this cave, this special place, and he's not changed. You can see it very clearly in what I'm fixing to read to you. He got there. He said, well, God, I'm glad you asked. Have you ever said that to God? A little little transparency here. Has God ever said to you in his own special way as you read his word, as you went through circumstances, as you went through your life, what are you doing here? And you said, God, I'm glad you asked because I have an answer. And you proceed to tell God kind of what Elijah tells God. I'm here to complain and I'm here to quit. Here's how it looks like in Elijah's words. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. Now, that's just a, that is really close to a prideful statement. All these other people, does this sound like Peter? Everyone else may run from you, Jesus, but not me. Of all the other prophets, I'm the only one. I've been very zealous. I've done what you called me to do. That's about me. And then it's about them. He says this, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. It's about them. And then just in case we didn't get it the first time. He comes back to me. I love that little joke that goes, a person talks about himself for two hours and said, that's enough about me. What do you think about me? So he comes back to me and he says, I'm the only one left and they are looking for me to take my life. Me, them, me. See, when we get in darkness, we get into um, being disillusioned, when we get disappointed, when we get discouraged, when we get physically tired, when we get spiritually defeated, when we're emotionally depleted, we get me-centered. Can I have a witness? Now listen, I I think I told you this morning, I think it was this morning, this sermon is too close to Dwayne Taylor. I just want to tell you that. I'll be very transparent with you. Too much of this is me and how I live and how I have a tendency to act. Me. 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 And here's the deal. Something one of the commentaries said, and I only tell you that because I don't want you to think I came up with this. Try to be transparent there too. But it said something, I went, oh my. You know know why I think probably that Elijah's on the run? I mean, he's afraid of Jezebel. But you remember, again, if if you were here last week, you heard it, but you remember the great victory at Mount Carmel? You remember he challenged the prophets of Baal and, and you know, and, and Baal Baal miserably and his God fire came down and consumed the altar and licked up the water and then he killed the 450 prophets of Baal, had them killed. Great, powerful victory. And see, David, he made the mistake of thinking the war was over. He assumed because there was a battle won at Mount Carmel that Baalism was defeated in Israel. Often, now the battle was over on the cross. The war was won at the cross. But you need to understand something because if you're in despair, it may be part of this. You fought and you fought and you thought the battle was over in that issue. The war's over in your life. But there will be battles for you to fight. And Elijah just assumed because of the great victory of Mount Carmel. When Jezebel comes and says, I'm going to kill you. He goes, wait, wait, wait. I thought we won the war. No, you'd won a battle. And ultimately, Elijah, the war will be won. Do you ever find yourself like this? Let me read it to you one more time, and I'm going to ask you a question. He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. The Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone and I'm left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Is there any evidence of a Mount Carmel? Is there any? I think I remember the people, they were present on Mount Carmel that day, they cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. There was some revival that took place at Mount Carmel. But in his disillusioned state, he can't see it. And I'm telling you, if you find yourself in the pits of despair today, if you find yourself physically and emotionally and spiritually depleted, it is very difficult for you to see the victories when God gives you the victories. And that just leads you further down the road. I mean, there's a standing joke around preachers that the most likely time to resign a church is after a great Sunday on Monday. Preachers have a great day on Sunday, resign on Monday. It's crazy how it happens. And sometimes, after the most powerful victories we have spiritually, we find ourselves on the run spiritually also. It just doesn't make any sense. So again, without a lecture... God simply says, well, verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. And so he does. At that moment, the Bible says, the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering the cliffs before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a voice. A soft soft whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Uh, Apparently, he had gone to the mouth. and, And first, as this wind, a wind so powerful, it was ripping rocks loose. God wasn't in that. And then there was this this earth-shattering, earth-moving earthquake. And God wasn't in that. And then fire, lightning, I don't know. Fire came. But God wasn't in the fire. And then he heard it. A still, small voice. One person translated it this way: a voice of total silence. Imagine imagine the wind, imagine the earthquake, imagine the fire, and then a stillness so strong you can feel it. And that's what it was. The lesson to Elijah Because Elijah was a guy who experienced fire falling from heaven. He had seen the fire lick up around the trenches. He had seen some really powerful movements of God. It's like God is saying, Elijah, I don't always speak the same way. If you expect me to respond in the same way, then you might miss me responding at all. I mean, after all, how many burning bushes were there in Moses' life? That would be one. That would be one. So God through his, this, I want to say the word terrible, but not in a bad way, a terrible, powerful silence. And it's so real, it's so real, that Elijah puts the mantle around his face and walks to the mouth of the cave again. He doesn't understand it. He can't explain it. But he knows it's God. Let me encourage you today. When you're in darkness, when you're in despair, when you are physically depleted, when you are spiritually defeated, when you're emotionally deflated, don't just expect God to shout from heaven. Listen for the still. Small voice. And the still small voice is just as real as the earthquake. The still small voice is just as real as the wind. The still small voice is just as real as the fire. In Psalm 46 and verse number 10, God's word says, Be still and just know that I am God. That word be still. Is stop striving. Stop striving. My word to you today. If you're in that dark place. And you're a place when your world is topsy-turvy. A place when your world is upside down. Where your marriage. You're not sure what's going to happen in your marriage. You're not sure what's going to happen with your children. Your job is not secure. uh, Your career is on the line. Be still. Stop striving. Stop fighting. And know. That I am God. That still small voice can be just as powerful as when he shouts from heaven. But we must be listening and we must be trusting. So we go through it again. So suddenly a voice came to him and this was not the still small voice. This is something totally different. A voice came to him and said... What are you doing here, Elijah? Does that sound familiar? You know, it's amazing. I want you to notice. Because Elijah doesn't change his reply. The question's the same, and the reply is the same. I have been very zealous for the Lord, God of hosts, he replied, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they're looking for me to take my life. And where Elijah was. He couldn't see the truth. So, in a conversation and a demonstration, God speaks to him in a different way. First off, if you got your sermon sheet, you'll notice I've moved verse number 18 up to after verse 14. Because Elijah is believing a lie, Elijah has convinced himself that he is the only one. That every, the battle has ravaged the prophets, ravaged the people. That there's no hope. It all rests on him. If it's not him, it doesn't get done. Not me, it won't happen. I'm the only one. In verse number 18, God's word says, Elijah, you need to know something. There are 7,000 that I have preserved. There are 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed him. Elijah, you are not by yourself. And my brother or sister, if you're in the pits of despair today, if your world is so dark, you've got to understand, you are not by yourself. Not only is there a God who promises to never leave you nor forsake you, he will not let you go. There are brothers and sisters in your life who want to walk. With you. That's one of the powers again of being part of a small group and being part of a church family is that when the dark times come, you don't have to walk alone. There's 7,000. Elijah don't believe the lies. Jesus would put it this way later on in John chapter 8 and verse number 32. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. John would later write also, that if the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. There is truth in acknowledging. Look, I understand you don't like your circumstances. I'm with you. I don't like mine sometimes either. I get that. But don't believe a lie. It's okay to say, God, I'm not real comfortable where you've got me right now. God's got really broad shoulders. He can handle that. In fact, he can probably handle you saying, God, I'm not real comfortable with what you're doing in my life right now. But don't believe a lie. Who who do you think had told Elijah that he was the only one? Who was it that allowed Jezebel's arrow to pierce his heart where he ran for his life and was afraid? The father of lies. You better learn to discern that voice of the evil one. He's a liar and the father of it, Jesus said. And when he speaks lies, he speaks his natural language. Be careful. Be careful. When you start believing a lie, it makes the comeback so much more difficult. And we've got to move on. And I think we'll leave we'll leave Elijah out that last chunk. But let me just close with this. Here's what's really cool. You know what God does this time? He doesn't send another earthquake or another fire or another windstorm. He doesn't even give us another still small voice. Here's what he says. In that simple statement, now listen carefully. In that simple statement, God is saying, Elijah, I believe in you. He sent him back, gets him involved in international politics and tells him to anoint a new king over Syria. He gets involved in national politics and says, go back and anoint Jehu as the new king of Israel. And then he says, I want you to travel literally hundreds of miles and go find a guy named Elijah, and he's going to be your new best friend. And there's a political plan that what Syria doesn't do, Jehu will do, and Jehu doesn't know that Elijah's going to do. He sends him back into the fray. He assures him, Elijah, the battle, the war is not over. The battle was won on Mount Carmel, but I will ultimately also win this war. Now go get back in the fight. And God loves you enough today to say, I believe in you. You are redeemed. You are not a worthless person. You are not a failure with no redemptive value. You know, I can say my car is worth $10,000. But let me tell you exactly what my car is worth. Whatever you're willing to pay for it. Let me tell you what you're worth. One more time. But while we were yet sinners. Before one habit changed in my life. Before my nature was made new. While I was still a sinner. Christ. God demonstrated his love. And that Christ died for us. You know how valuable you are, Charlie? You're valuable enough that the the Son of God would strap on a human body, live a sinless life, and allow Himself to be nailed to a Roman cross, scourged, forehead bleeding, the sins of the entire world on a holy God-man experiencing the entire wrath of God. That's how much He loves you. And if you're here today, as we go back, if you need to come home today, that's how much He loves you. And when you're in your journey through life and it just seems like God doesn't care and and God doesn't love you, this is the anchor of hope. This is the anchor of love. It says forever. Forever. In your darkest valley. Child of God. Redeemed one. Redeemed one. Masterpiece. I love you. Let me tell you something. Brent, that food got Elijah 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Horeb. That love will carry you through every valley, every dark time, every hard day. In fact, it will carry you straight into heaven, where you'll spend eternity worshiping and praising the one who loved you that much. So, here it comes down to this Do you need to come home today? heard a wonderful story from Barry Steed during the ball game. He gave his testimony how in 1990 he had a 9 millimeter pistol in his hand which was ready to kill himself. And Jesus stepped in and brought him home. That day he met Jesus Christ as Savior. Knee deep in drugs and knee deep in alcohol. And he was redeemed. And if you're here today and you've never experienced this gift of grace, you never understood how much God loved you, that He sent his Son Jesus, that you could come in a relationship with him, my friend Brent's going to be standing down front, and we would love to share with you that love, that grace. And God doesn't care again, skin color or you know how rich or poor. He doesn't care if you count yourself a really moral person or not very moral. The ground's level at the cross. He says, my grace really is sufficient for you. I'll tell you what we're going to do today. Somewhere in the invitation, I'm not sure, I'll work it out in just a minute in my head. But I want to invite you to come to the altar. You know, Jim Lindsay lost a sister this week. Linda Teagarden lost a brother this week. Jackie Scott lost a mama this week. We have several people that we love very dearly going through a battle with cancer right now. I still think about Donna and Laura May and Joanne, and I think about these ones who have lost recently. Their loved ones. Irene Seats. And I just feel like we need to pause. And pray. I don't want anyone. I don't want anyone leaving here today. Thinking that you're by yourself. I want every person to know. That there's a God who loves. A God who wants to bring you home. And a God who cares. A God who brings home. A God who brings back. Let's pray. Father, you are so incredible. I am overwhelmed with your incredible love. When I think about Jesus becoming flesh that first Christmas morning, fully God and yet fully man, and living this sinless life, Speaking his wonderful message of redemption. Allowing himself to be nailed to a cross. Yielding his life. Giving his life freely. That I could be forgiven. That we could be forgiven. Well, what wondrous love is that? Oh, my soul, what wondrous love is that? And for my friends here today. For my friends here today. Who have never experienced that grace. Oh, I pray you'll draw them to yourself today, Jesus. Let them discover what true life is about. Jesus, you define eternal life. And me you know you, God, and, and you, Jesus. Bring them home today. And Father, as we in a moment pause and pray for one another. Father, may we leave this place knowing you will never leave us nor forsake us. But we have brothers and sisters who love us also. Have your way, please, in this time. And Jesus, I pray this in your name. Amen.